you got your Bibles, open up. We're going to be in Genesis today, right at the end of Genesis. I'm going to be covering quite a lot of chapters, but we're going to focus in on a bit of chapter 45 of Genesis, and then as well a little bit of Genesis chapter 50, okay? Jesus told this parable of the unforgiving servant, the unforgiving servant. And to paraphrase the parable a little bit, it's the story of a, a man who had a boss, and the man owed the boss quite a bit of money. And the boss called in the debt. And the, the, the man who owed the boss a lot of money went to him, and he started begging him and pleading, saying, Would, I, I just don't have it. I, I can't pay you back. I don't know what to do. And the boss, very generously, very graciously, very mercifully, he forgave his debt. He completely let him go. He said, you're forgiven. You don't owe anything anymore. And he gave him all this time and, and all this, this space. And the unforgiving servant, it's the story of this guy who just had all this debt forgiven, and, and he had a grace given to him that he didn't deserve. And then the very next thing we're told that this young man did is he went out and he called a group of men that owed him money to come to him. And he started demanding of them that they pay him back the debts that they owed him. And the men, just like he had done previously, these other men come up to him and say, Master, please, we don't have the money. What can we do? And he starts berating them. And he starts demanding that they pay their debts right now. No grace. <laughs> He's not extending any grace whatsoever. Pay your debts immediately. Well, the, the younger men, they go to the higher boss. And they say, look, this guy is demanding that we pay debts that we don't have. What are we going to do? So the higher boss calls the first one in, the one who he had forgiven all the debt. He says, what are you doing? He says, I forgave you all of that debt. And now you're exacting it out of those who owe you. You couldn't, you couldn't transfer that forgiveness to anyone else. He says, now I'm going to throw you in prison until all of your payments that you originally owed me are paid. It's a story of forgiveness. And in the life of a follower of Christ, that, that little parable needs to ring very deeply and resonate with our souls in a way that impacts our day-to-day -day life. Today, I'm going to be preaching on the theme of forgiveness. And forgiveness is a, a very difficult topic to preach on. And let me explain to you why. Because to forgive somebody is to, is to acknowledge that there's somebody who has caused you incredible hurt and incredible pain. And to deal with that pain is not simple. It requires you to kind of open up some wounds that most of us were very uncomfortable. And at the very least, we're untrained on how to do this. But more than that, most of us are very uncomfortable to open those wounds. And typically what we try to do is we try to settle for a cheap version of forgiveness that just kind of moves on. We, you know, we forgive you. It, it's not a big deal. Let's just go on with our day. And when we settle for cheap forgiveness, we rob ourselves of what Christ actually wants to form in us. And more often than not, we're, we're storing up these little burning embers in our soul that are waiting to explode at a later date. We need to learn the art of forgiveness. It's very important for a follower of Christ. But the question that many of us need to ask is, what does it mean? How do you forgive a person? Jesus calls us to forgive. He actually commands us to forgive. Remember the disciples went to him, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? He said, no, seven times 70. In other words, don't stop forgiving. But what does it mean to forgive? That's what I wanna to try to explore today. We're gonna to look at the story of Joseph, this remarkable story in the Old Testament. Joseph and his brothers and the forgiveness that he extends to them. It covers many chapters right towards the end of Genesis. And the whole story points us towards Christ. 
But what I want to do is I want to walk through the story of Joseph. I want to show you what we can learn from his story. And then I want to ask how we can apply it into our own lives as we learn to step into what it means to truly forgive others the way Christ has forgiven us. So let me tell you Joseph's story. Joseph's story begins in Genesis chapter 37. And what we learn about Joseph is that he was the brother. He had 11 other brothers. He was the youngest brother of uh, 11 other brothers. His father was Jacob. Now, if you remember Jacob, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. So all the promises that were made to Abraham were now made to Jacob. And now we got Joseph. It's the son of Jacob. All the promises are going to eventually flow through Joseph. But Joseph, you know, he, he was born into a bit of a dysfunctional family. His, his, his dad was uh, a, in a polygamous situation. And polygamy in the Old Testament is interesting because it always ends up in destruction. It ends up in feuds happening in families. Wherever there's multiple wives, multiple marriages, you got these kids who have different sets of parents growing up in the same house. Things don't play out well ever in polygamous relationships in the Old Testament. And it didn't play out well in this situation. All the brothers were jealous of Joseph. They were jealous of him because the father loved him the most. He had one other full-blooded brother. His name was Benjamin, and the rest were half-brothers. But the dad, Jacob, loved Joseph the most. And all the other brothers knew it, and they were jealous about it. Some of you have grown up in dysfunctional families where there's some kind of dysfunction taking place. You can resonate with Joseph. One day, Joseph has these dreams, and the dreams are essentially that there's going to come some day in the future where all the brothers and the mom and Jacob and the dad are going to be bowing down to Joseph, the youngest brother. And the brothers, are you out of your mind? We're going to bow down to you? Who do you think they are? You are. And their anger towards their brother begins to boil over into something more than jealousy. It begins to boil into hatred. One day, Jacob, the father, sends the youngest brother, Joseph, to go find all the other brothers. They're shepherds, and they had been out in the countryside with their sheep. Some are far away. They hadn't been home for days. Jacob starts to get a little worried for them, sends Joseph, go find your brothers. So Joseph ends up finding them out in the field. As the brothers see Joseph approaching them, the brothers begin to concoct a scheme. This is our chance. Dad's not here. We're days away from home. Let's get rid of him. We don't need to deal with this runt anymore. Let's get rid of him. No one will know the difference. One of the brothers, Reuben, tries to step in and, and, and figure some plan out, but it, it doesn't work. The original plan is to kill him. They end up settling for something that might actually be worth, worse. They sell him to slave traders. Here's Joseph, the favorite son, into the, a promised family, of a descendant of Abraham. And by the time he leaves his brothers, he's in a cage being carted off to Egypt as a slave. The brothers go home to Jacob. They take his coat, the, the, the beautiful coat that his father had given him. They dip it in blood. Incredible atonement imagery here, by the way. They take the coat, they dip it in blood, and they give it to Jacob, and they say, your son has been killed. They lie to the father. It's interesting. The very next chapter actually deals with one of the brothers and all the brokenness that ends up coming in his life as he starts fully living into the sin that's taken over his life. Meanwhile, Joseph finds himself in Egypt. He's away from his family. His dad thinks he's dead. His family, his brothers have sold him into slavery. He's a product of human trafficking. I mean, let's just get the language right. What would be going on in your soul? The text reminds us, actually, at this point, a number of the, 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 the stopping points in the story of Genesis. There are these little phrases. You miss them if you read it too quick, but it says, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. Even as he was in that cart, being carted away from Israel to Egypt, 
God was with Joseph. He arrives in Egypt, and he gets sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar just so happened, by God's providence, to be a leading guard in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He was a leading guard. Now, Joseph was a, a, a quite an extraordinary young gentleman. Wherever he went, he had success. Wherever he went, he had success, including in Potiphar's house. Even as a slave, he starts to have success. Potiphar entrusts him with the whole house. He says, wherever you go, flourishing happens. <laughs> so I'll put you in charge of everything. Potiphar goes away one day, and while he's gone, Potiphar's wife begins to seduce young Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old when he got transferred as a slave into Egypt. Potiphar's wife begins to seduce him. Joseph, as a godly man, does what godly men do. He says no. But one day when Potiphar's away, Potiphar's wife throws herself on Joseph, says, lie with me. Joseph, again, does what any godly man should do. He flees the situation. Godly men, that's what you do. You run. You don't negotiate. You don't talk your way out of it. You flee that foolishness. But as it would happen, this woman is more than just a seductress. She's also a liar. As he fled, she held on to his coat, and he fled away, and she brought the coat to Potiphar, and she lied about him. She's so angry that Joseph wouldn't sleep with her. She makes a lie up about Joseph and says, Joseph tried to rape me. Potiphar is beside himself. I trusted you with my house, slave. He throws him in prison. We don't know exactly how long it was. Overall, it was 13 years from 17 to 30 years old that he spends in Egypt. And for some of that time, he was a slave. For the rest of it, he was in prison. Probably over a decade, he ends up spending in prison for a crime he did not commit, for doing the godly thing. But the text says, God was with him. He's down in prison rotting. These are not modern-day prison cells. These are pits in dark underground caves. This is Egypt in B.C. This is not where you want to be. You can die just from being in the cave. And yet, there's Joseph, once again, flourishing. He gets put in charge of the prison cell as a prisoner. Two men find their way in there. They each have dreams. They don't quite understand what the dreams are about, but it turns out that Joseph serves a God who's able to interpret dreams, and he interprets these dreams for these two men. One of them is to be killed the next day. His dream didn't, didn't turn out to be too good for him. The other man works for Pharaoh. And he says, you're going to be released and you're going to have your job back. He says to the man who he interpreted the positive dream for, he says, look, when you get out of jail and you go back to Pharaoh, will you tell him about me, that I'm in here unjustly? The other man gets out of jail, completely forgets, forgets about Joseph. But God was with Joseph. One day, Pharaoh has a dream. It's interesting how all these moments, in hindsight, you see the providence of God working. But you have to imagine Joseph. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite know how it's going to work out for him. But one day, Pharaoh himself has a dream that nobody can interpret. Nobody can understand what it means, but Pharaoh's convinced this dream means something. I need to know. He starts telling his court about it, and the guy who Joseph had previously interpreted his dream is now in vicinity of Pharaoh. He says, hey, Pharaoh, there was this young Hebrew slave who interpreted my dream for me, and he was spot on. I think he's still down there. I forgot about him until now, but you should call him up. So Pharaoh calls Joseph up. Joseph shaves, bathes himself, presents himself before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and Joseph interprets the dream for him. 
And, and Joseph gives all the credit to God. He says, look, I, I, it's not with me to interpret anything. That, that power is the God I serve. But he says, here's what the dream means. There's gonna be seven years of plenty in Egypt. It's gonna be seven years of unbelievable harvest. Everything's gonna go well. And then it's gonna be followed by seven years of famine where it's gonna be no, no fruit, no harvest, no anything. Pharaoh is so impressed with this ability to interpret the dream that he ends up putting Joseph, just like Potiphar had, just like the slave, the, the, the prison guard had, Pharaoh ends up putting Joseph in charge of economic development over all of Egypt. He says, I can't find a man as wise as this to oversee what's gonna happen in the next 15 years. So he says, here's what I'm gonna do. Joseph, run an economic development plan. If we know there's seven years of plenty coming and then seven years of famine, we're gonna need a plan to get through the famine. Joseph, you're in charge. You have as much authority, your authority is just a smidgen under mine. Run it, what would you do? So Joseph concocts a plan. Now he spends the next 14 years as Pharaoh's chief economic advisor. Not a bad gig. He, he makes this plan, he's gonna tax the Egyptians during the years of plenty. You bring us your grain. We'll store it up so that when the seven bad years come, you can come to us and we'll dole out food to you so that everyone will survive. Well, seven years of plenty come, and they are followed by the seven years of famine. The famine hits, and it doesn't just hit Egypt, but it hits all the surrounding nations. Now, the only place that has food is the one where Joseph was in charge of the economic development plan, Egypt. So all the nations start making trips. All the people, all the tribes, start sending leaders that represent them to Joseph because rumors spreading that there's food in Egypt. So guess who makes the trip down to visit Joseph? The brothers. The same 11 brothers who sold them into slavery now need food. So they make their way down to Egypt. Joseph is standing there doing what he does every day in front of wherever he is where all the food's being kept in Egypt. And he sees in the line, down the line, 11 guys who are the ones who sold them into slavery. Now, keep in mind, they won't be able to recognize him. 17, at least 17, more like 24. Four years have passed. He's older. He was 17 at the time. You change a lot. He's speaking Hebrew. And if he was an elite in Egypt, he probably was covered in gold paint. They don't recognize him. But he, I'm sorry, Joseph is speaking Egyptian. And the brothers are speaking Hebrew. So they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. He sees them coming down. What would be going through your mind? They end up getting to Joseph and... Joseph doesn't quite know what to do with himself. On the one hand, his dream is coming to fruition that he originally had. The brothers are bowing down to him. They plead with him. When, he first gets to them, when, the, when the brother first gets to them, he's overwhelmed. All this emotion's coming up in him. It's interesting, earlier on in the story when Joseph had had son, uh, two sons, the text tells us specifically, and we'll get back to this in a bit, the text tells us that he had forgotten all of his troubles in Israel. He put it behind him. But here he is. All of it's coming up. His brothers are in front of him. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. And he accuses them of being spies. He says, you're spies. And they say, what are you talking about? We're just here for food like everybody else. He says, no, you're spies. I know you are. And then it tells us that he flees the room. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 42, 24. Then he turned away from them and wept. On at least four occasions over the next four chapters, Joseph has to leave the room weeping. At one point, he weeps so loudly, 
so humiliatingly that it says that the court of the Egyptian rulers were able to hear him bawling in the other room. It's all coming out of him. After he says, he's talking to the 11 brothers, he's kind of playing games with them. He says, look, where's the youngest brother, Benjamin? Benjamin didn't make the trip. It was only 10 of the brothers that made the trip. Joseph's full brother, full blood brother, still back at home. He was now the youngest one. He says, where's this other? You're lying to me. I don't believe you. Where's the youngest brother? They say, look, we're not lying to you. So he has this plan. He says, look, leave one of you here. You go back get your youngest brother and bring him back to me. So the other brothers, totally confused, make their way back to Israel. They tell Jacob all that happened, the father. Now, one of the brothers is held in prison underneath Joseph in Egypt. Nine of them have gone back. Everything's in disarray. They eat the food. Joseph did send them back with plenty of food. But he says, come back. Next time you come back, come back with Benjamin. Eventually, they run out of food. Remember, it's a seven-year famine. Now the brothers have to go back. But the oldest brother, Judah, who was in charge, actually, the, the main one who had originally schemed to sell the brother, he says to Jacob, he goes, look, I can't go back without Benjamin. If I go back without Benjamin, he's going to throw us all in prison. Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go. He's already lost a son. He's, he's, he's a different man since Joseph was killed in his eyes. This is a man who's lost his, his beloved child, the apple of his eye. He's never been the same since. And now he won't lose Benjamin. But Judah says, you have to send Benjamin with me. There's nothing I could do. And so Jacob relents and he sends Benjamin. He says, if I lose another son, it's, it's just what happens. So Jacob, or Ju Judah, takes his other brothers, takes Benjamin with him. And they present themselves before Joseph again. Now, once again, Ju uh, Joseph, who's overseeing this whole economic development plan, sees his brothers in line, and again, all the emotions start to come up in him. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's overwhelmed by it. And he finally sees his youngest brother, Benjamin. He says, is this the youngest brother? That night, he has them all over to a meal. He hasn't revealed himself to them yet, but he just, he bestows unbelievable amounts of food on Benjamin's plate to the point that the other brothers are looking in on this saying, we don't understand this. What's, what's his obsession with Benjamin? But I don't even think Jacob understands it at this point or Joseph understands it at this point. Joseph's just a confused man in a moment doing whatever he thinks he can do. He has one more kind of trick he's gonna play on them. And I think the best way to interpret what he does next is that he's testing his brothers. He sends them all home the next day, loads them up with food, says, go back to Israel. But he sends one of his servants to take his own silver cup that he drinks out of. He says, put it in Benjamin's pack. Don't tell him it's there. So the 10 brothers, the 11 brothers, they all head back to Israel, still not knowing who Joseph is. And as they're heading out of Egypt, one of uh, Joseph's servants catches up to them and says, someone stole the silver cup of the king. We wouldn't do that. Of course we wouldn't do that. He says, come back with us. We believe it's one of you. Come back. So they go back. They present themselves once again to Judah. And uh, they open Benjamin's pack. And sure enough, there's the silver cup. At this point, the text doesn't say directly what the motivations are. But Joseph is testing his brothers. What will they do when they're presented with the possibility that young Benjamin is gonna be kept in prison? How will they behave? Will they sell him off the way they sold Joseph? Listen to how Judah responds, Genesis 44, 33 to 34. Judah says this, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy Benjamin as a servant to my Lord. 
and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What did Judah just do? Judah offers to enslave himself instead of Benjamin. Take me as a substitute for Benjamin. Two verses later, we read this. And Joseph wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it too. He's just a mess. He's seeing the actual transformation of the man who sold him into human trafficking. And it's all coming out of him. At this point, Joseph's wounds are pouring out of him. There's no anger. There's no grudges. There's just this joyful, emotional outburst that he can't control that's embarrassing him in front of the other Egyptians. Genesis 45, verses 4 to 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. They came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph eventually sends his brothers back, says, bring, bring my dad back. I want to settle you in Egypt. There's great land here. I want to see my dad again. Joseph's brothers go home. Jacob can't believe. I don't believe you. I got to see it with my own eyes. Jo Jacob, now an old man, makes the trek, and he goes and sees his son, the apple of his eye, and he sees that he's alive, and he worships God. The family settles in Egypt. Eventually, Jacob passes away. A few years later, he's finally seen his son again. Jacob passes away, and all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 50, right before the book of Genesis ends, Joseph's brothers are terrified again because Jacob's dead. And they're afraid that now that daddy's dead, now the real bitterness and revenge is gonna take place. Now Joseph's gonna come for us. And so they plead with Joseph, don't, don't destroy us. Listen to Joseph's words to them. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the end of Genesis ends with this rather extraordinary reconciliation between the brothers as they settle in Egypt. And we are prepared for the book of Exodus of what occurs next. What I'd like to do is draw out four applications for us directly from this text. Like I said, forgiveness is, uh, is not easy to preach on. And the reason is because I know that as I'm preaching on this, um, some of you have been wounded in degrees that are close to Joseph's. Joseph was sold into slavery, in human trafficking. To forgive that, humanly speaking, is an extraordinary level of forgiveness. Some of you in this room have people who have done levels of harm that are equivalent and, uh, and what the scriptures call us to is something that is beyond what's humanly possible, but not what's impossible with the Holy Spirit. Principle number one is this. Joseph's forgiveness is a shadow of Christ's forgiveness. 
Joseph's forgiveness is a shadow that points us to the substance that is Christ's forgiveness. Think of this, Christ is the greater Joseph. Christ is the greater Joseph. Like Joseph, Christ was punished for crimes he didn't commit. He was innocent. Christ committed no sin, and yet he was punished as someone who committed great sin. Christ was killed mercilessly on the cross, and he suffered for three days. He was in the pit of death. Just as Joseph, after he was uh, was, uh, put in prison for a crime he didn't commit, suffered in prison basically in a hell-like condition in a cave in Egypt. Joseph was restored to like a king-like posture. Jesus was restored and resurrected to his full kingly posture where he took on his glorified body. He is the greater Joseph. But the story is not just that. We are like the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. For 20 shekels of silver, he was sold. They sold their brother for for a few pieces of silver. And then the text actually says, after they sold him, they sat down and they ate lunch. Isn't that an interesting detail in the story? They make a plan to sell their brother and then they sit down and they eat lunch. We, like the brothers, we've tried to cover our tracks of our betrayal of Jesus. Many of us don't believe this. We we don't believe that our sin is quite to the degree of Joseph's brothers, how they sold Joseph. But that's what we've actually done to the king of kings. Every time that we have broken God's commands, every little law that we've broken, every time we've looked at the word of God and we've said, we'll go our own way, or we've thought something different than what God would have us think, we've held anger in our heart, we've held grudges in our heart, we've lusted in our heart, we've failed to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Every little sin we've ever done, what the text of the Bible teaches is that what that is, is it's making us an enemy of God. We were not just morally neutral, but we were those who sold Christ to the crucifixion. We were those who made ourselves rebels towards his law. We weren't just morally neutral. We were looking at God in all of his holiness, in all of his goodness. And until we put our faith in Christ, we were actually rebels to him, going our own way, saying, we see your law and we hate it. We don't want anything to do with it. In fact, we don't want anything to do with you. We're going to go this way. That's exactly what Judah's brothers, what Joseph's brothers did to him. And it's exactly what we have done to Christ. Colossians chapter one, verse 21 says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, speaking to Christians, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ is the greater Joseph. See, The way Christ has forgiven you is more than what Joseph did for his brothers. What Joseph did for his brothers was extraordinary. He forgave a debt that I don't know if I'd be able to do. But he first made Joseph, but made his brothers prove that they were changed, didn't he? He first wanted to see, is Judah going to do the same thing to this guy that he did to me back 15 years ago? Jesus doesn't do that with us. Jesus doesn't make us first prove that we're a changed person before he offers grace to us. In fact, if God waited for us to change our lives before he forgave us, we would never be able to do it. Why? Because we're hostile in mind. Our hearts were going the other direction from God. And the text, the Bible teaches us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, before we could ever prove ourselves that we're changed people because we weren't changed, it was then that God extended mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace to us. 
It was then, it wasn't that we got our life in order and then God said, there's someone I can entrust with forgiveness. He forgave us while we were running full away from him. That's your story if you're a Christian. God sent the Father, sent the Son to take your place underneath the wrath of God and his death on the cross forgives all of your debt, all of it paid in full, every little bit of it before you could ever do anything to, it, to earn his love. Now look at this. You've had a level of forgiveness offered you that is greater than the level of forgiveness that Joseph offered Judah. Think about that for a second. Most of us don't think of ourselves as that big of sinners. We look at someone like Judah who sold his brother for 20 shekels of silver and sat down and ate lunch, and we think, now there's a sinner. The difference is that what Judah did was to a man, Joseph. What we have done is to the king of kings, who created us and sustains us and intricately wove our hearts together. Our crimes against God are far greater than Judah's crimes against Joseph. And yet, God has forgiven us. We are the bigger sinner. And yet Christ has forgiven us in full. Now, how we forgive others becomes a means of grace in our life. Let me teach you this word, means of grace. Here's what this means. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been forgiven in full. And now the life of following Christ is a life of learning holiness and walking in all of the law of God as he would have you walk. And when you properly practice godliness the way that God has prescribed it for you, it's called a means of grace. It forms a deeper walk with you, with Jesus. So now when you extend grace and forgiveness to another person, when you release the debt they owe you in full, the way Christ has released your debt, you become more like Christ. You grow in your holiness. It's a means of grace of becoming more like Jesus. Not of getting more favor with God, but just deepening your love of him. Your debt to Christ was greater than Judah's debt to Joseph. Secondly, forgiveness often releases you more than the other person. This one is a bit of a backwards bit of logic for us, but we need to understand this. Forgiveness often releases you, the forgiver, more than it releases the person who's being forgiven. Remember Joseph, it, it tells us this in Genesis 41. Joseph, after he had two sons, Joseph, Genesis 41, 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardships in all of my father's house. Joseph thought he had moved on. He had written it off, I'm good. God, I'm fine. I don't even need to think about it again until they showed up on its doorstep. And then he couldn't stop weeping. Then he was a mess. Then he cried so hard that he was embarrassed in front of Egyptians, the Egyptians' court. He, he was a wreck. Learning to spiritually forgive another person requires you to take the trowel deep into your heart and let the Holy Spirit do a work on you that no non-Christian is able to do. I'm not talking about forgiveness the way any secular person is able to forgive another person. That's not this. I am talking about a person filled by the Holy Spirit who is permitting the hard work of going before God in prayer and truly learning to release a person from their debt in your life. We think when we're playing the scenarios over and over in our head that, they've, that this person's done to us that we're heaping coals on their head. But actually what we're doing is we're heaping coals on our own soul. We harbor these grudges and these debts other people have held against us, forgetting what Christ has forgiven us of. Praise God that he's not there harboring debts 
of what we've done because our sin would get us cast into prison over and over again, cast into hell. That's what it would get. God fully releases us. But what we do when we tell the story over and over and we play it over in our mind, we make them the enemy, this person who's wronged us, we're just heaping coals in our own soul. Let me give you some practical things to think about this. I am speaking about a forgiveness that fully releases the debt that a person who has wronged you has in your heart between you and God. Four things to think about. Number one, if the person who wronged you has committed an actual crime against you, I'm not talking about just washing the crime away. It's possible to put a person in jail and fully release them from the debt between you and God. Crimes need to be paid for in prison or whatever the law says. It's possible to forgive a person in your heart between you and God and release them from the debt. Number two, the work of forgiveness cannot be done cheaply. Where there is a true wound, true balm needs to be applied. This is hard work of prayer where you walk with Jesus and through faith, he's going to release you from holding on to the debt of that person having over your life. He wants to free you from it. You're enslaved to it until you get forgiveness going on in your heart. You're a slave to that. And God wants to release you from it, but it can't be done cheaply. You can't write it off the way Joseph did. Number three, the work of forgiveness is in no way dependent on the behavior of the other person. They may or may not ask for forgiveness. They may or may not even think they've done anything wrong. That has nothing to do with releasing them from the debt. You don't even have to go to them and tell them you've forgiven them. It's between you and God. It's between you and God. This is a work of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Number four, true forgiveness holds no grudge afterwards. It refuses to gossip. It refuses to repeat the story and bring it up again to tell others how they've wronged you. It releases the debt the wrong is no longer considered. I heard one pastor talk about this recently, and he made one wise piece of advice. He said, it is helpful as limited human beings to have one other person that you can have accountability and share your counsel with. One other person that you trust, who you can just share how you're processing this, but that's it. We are not sharing the story of how we've been wronged with other people. We are not like the rest of the world. We've been forgiven, and now we're working to extend forgiveness to another person. Second principle, forgiveness often releases you more than the other person. Number three, the spiritual work of forgiveness is aided by a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. Okay, this is important. I'm, I believe in this room, just about every person. I'm preaching to myself right now, just so you know. As I've worked on this sermon, I'm thinking, you know what I do? <laughs> you remember that old De Niro movie? You talking to me? You talk. I do that while I'm driving in the car sometimes. I think of people that have harmed me and done wrong to me, and I play the scenario over, you talking to me, and I'm, I'm, making, my, I'm making my some tough guy in my head of, of how, what I would really do if I was in the room and I could replay that scenario. Oh, how I'd put them in their place. You laugh, but you do it too. We all do this. The way to get over that and the way to move beyond those coals in your soul is first to have a proper understanding of the providence of God. God's fully in control. Think of Joseph's stories, all the points where Joseph had to understand the providence of God. In hindsight, when Joseph was going to find his brothers in the field before they sold him, he actually asked a man if they had seen his brothers. And the man said, oh yeah, they're that way. Who do you think put that man there? 
How'd that man get there that knew where Joseph's brothers were? It was the providence of God. It was, why was Joseph permitted to be accused for a crime he didn't commit? It was the providence of God. Why did two men happen to have dreams that could be interpreted that would, one of them would be in Pharaoh's court later on? It was the providence of God. Why was he sold in the Potiphar's house of all the people in Egypt who happened to be a guard for Pharaoh? It was the providence of God. Listen to what Joseph said. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is why right thinking about God is not enough. It's one thing to hear me preach week in, week out. God is sovereign over all events of history. It's another thing to take that knowledge and work it down into your soul through prayer and reflection, aided by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the point that when harm comes upon you, you have a belief that you are willing to bleed for that says, I know that I am not outside God's providence right now. I know that he's not worried right now. Do you know how many times in our household we play that new song that's on the radio? Why am I worried when you're not worried? Why am I worried? You're not worried. He's not worried. He knows everything you're going through. In fact, the days of our lives were written before we ever lived them. Having an understanding of the providence of God aids you in the work of forgiveness because now you can, you can begin with hindsight. This is a messy situation. This is not like, I'm just gonna do it, right? No, this is messy. We're humans. We need a lot of grace. God offers us grace. But you begin to see the providence of God, all that he led you through, how he guided you by his hand, how he has got you to this place, how he brought you to a church family, how he made you a Christian, how he surrounded you by people who love you, how he was with you in the midst of the fire and the trial. Even in that dark moment, he was there with you, and you know it, and you begin to say, I can trust him with releasing the debt that I want to hold over that person. He was with me. And I don't want to throw coals on their head anymore. I want to release them from that. Here's how you know if you can really trust the providence of God. You all have somebody in your mind right now, by the way. Everyone's got somebody in your mind. I got somebody in my mind. You got somebody in your mind. I want you to picture that person. Now picture you shoulder to shoulder with them, standing before the throne of grace. And it's heaven. And it's sweet. And the two of you are looking at Jesus on his throne and the seraphim all around and the saints worshiping. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, he forgave them too, just like he forgave me. Do you want that for that person? That's how you know, that's how you begin to understand if you've got this providence thing down. Here, here's a good one. Can you pray that for that person? Think of the person who's wrong you. Can you pray, God, I want them to enjoy the fullness of heaven with me. That's how you know you've, you've really forgiven them. That's the test. You can't, you can't paste that one on. That's the hard work of forgiveness that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life. Maybe you pray a prayer like this today. Jesus, I could never comprehend the fullness of your wisdom. I cannot see all things and their interconnectedness. But my anchor in the midst of my pain is that you can. More than that, that you do. 
Whatever glory you are bringing about right now, I pray for its fullness to be revealed in me and through me. Teach me to find peace in the reality that you are ultimately in control and heal my wounded heart as only you can. Final principle. In light of what I just shared, we must pray for the grace-abounding transformation of our enemies. This is how we forgive. We're Christians. Think of Judah. Judah experienced a transformation. Now, Judah's story is really messy. The story after he sold Judah, Joseph into slavery. Judah goes and has an affair with a prostitute and ends up having an illegitimate child and the whole thing is a disaster. That's that's Genesis 38. (laughs) Judah's life is terrible after this. But over a season of years, something happens in Judah's life where God gets a hold of a wretch like Judah and he makes him into a young man who would say, take me instead. I'll go in the pits of hell for him. God can do that to your greatest enemies. This takes extraordinary humility. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, a verse that we say a lot, but in light of today's sermon, maybe it takes a bit of a new shade. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How do we pray for our enemies? How does a a person who's been wronged see a wrongdoing that's been committed against them and see all the wickedness and the fruit of it and the emotional pain in your life and in your kids' lives and in, in your family's lives and in your church's life and you see all of it and you say, God, would you just shower them in abundant blessing? Would, would, you, would you make it go well for them? Would you reconcile their relationship with their kid? And, and God, would you, would you reconcile their relationship in their marriage? And How do you start praying that prayer? The only way to do that is if you have been forgiven so greatly by Jesus and you see your own sinfulness as chief among sinners. And you begin to look to God the Father and you say, you have been a heavenly Father who has cherished me and has bestowed on me so much forgiveness I could, I could never repay you. How could I possibly withhold that from somebody else? That's it. Only the Christian can do that. And then you begin to extend forgiveness. You need to pray for them. Now, here's what I want to do. I, I, I want to take this moment, and I want to give an opportunity for you in this room to release people from their debts. If you're in here today, it wasn't an accident. We believe in God's providence, right? <laughs> you got here because God directed your steps. And if you're thinking of somebody in your mind, that's the Holy Spirit putting that person on your heart saying, I know you thought you forgave them, but there's more work to do. That's the Holy Spirit, so listen to it. So what we're gonna do right now, and I'm gonna invite the band to come up, is we're gonna have a little bit of a revival service right now. And I'm gonna invite you to release them fully. If you're not ready to do it, then be honest with God and just say, God, I'm not ready to do it, and God at a later date, I want you to do that in my heart because this sounds pretty good. But if you're ready to forgive the person that you've been holding on to, we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to do that work right now. Maybe the person is, a really, is, is someone in your family. Maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a parent for some of you that really harmed you and did wrong. Maybe it's a spouse or a former spouse. 
Maybe, God forbid, it was a pastor or someone who is a spiritual mentor to you. Whoever it is, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. And by the way, as I pray this prayer, I recognize, I was thinking about this this morning, for some of you, the person you need to forgive is no longer with us. They passed away. And you're still harboring debt against them. God can still release you from that in this room right now. So I'm going to put a prayer up behind me. And if you are ready to pray this prayer with me, you don't have to say it out loud, but you can repeat it with me as I pray. And, uh, and then I'm going to invite us into a moment of prayer and worship. Jesus, I trust you. Deep down in my soul, I trust you. And I confess to you that forgiveness is difficult and that I have not yet mastered this spiritual discipline. I confess that I have unforgiveness towards this person. In your heart right now, say their name before Jesus. I have unforgiveness towards this person. I confess that I, by myself, am too spiritually weak to forgive the way you have commanded me to do. But you've given me your spirit when I believed in Jesus, and you've empowered me by grace to grow in Christ's likeness. Jesus, I release the debt of this person to you. In silence, in a quiet prayer, say that one loudly in silence to Jesus. Say, I'm gonna pray it again. Jesus, I release the debt of this person to you. I no longer wanna hold it. I no longer wanna harbor anger towards them. Here we go. In fact, I pray for them right now. Can you do this? Lord, might you pour blessing on their life. Lord, might you place your saints around them who will guide them to saving faith in Jesus so that they too can have their sins forgiven as I have had mine forgiven. Lord, help this part of my soul that has harbored corruption for so long find joy abounding as you heal me. Let me invite you to stand up. Our worship team is going to sing two very powerful worship songs right now. And uh, we're going to close our service with these worship songs. But what we're going to do is we're also going to have a prayer service. And I'm going to invite our deacons to come out. And uh, any of you who have been trained in uh, intercession, praying for others, you can come out and you can line up around the walls, find a space. And uh, you are free to use this next 10 minutes as we worship however you need to in this moment. If the Lord's doing something in your heart right now, maybe it's just between you and God. But what I would encourage you to do is to get up out of your seat and to find one of our prayer warriors that's around this room. Can I make sure we have a few that are in the back of the room as well, not just in the front? Get up out of your seat and pray with them. They They are trained to pray with you and to take this moment of what the Spirit's doing and to pray it powerfully. It usually takes more than just you and God. It usually takes the saints coming in and praying with you. Use it. And so you are free to get up out of your chairs. You're free to sing along with us if you want to. You can be quiet in your chairs and just pray silently. However you need to use this space, it's yours. Father, receive this time. We just want to worship you. We want to be the church who prays. And we want to trust that your Holy Spirit's at work. Move among us right now. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.